Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, oops, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this moment, we bring to it all that we are, all that we're thinking. In many ways, it's really hard to be present in any single moment. Our minds swirl with thoughts. We think about the past, often regretting the past, or we think about the future, often anticipating the future or fearing the future. And the one place it's so hard to be is just right here, right now. And this is where you are. So help us amidst the frantic nature of our lives. Help us to settle down right now and to hear your still, small voice. The voice of the Good Shepherd. The voice of the one who created us and knows us and who proclaims over us, I know you and I love you. Help us to see that none of us has it all together. Each of us is more broken than We want others to even realize, and at the same time, you see us and you know us in all our complexity and contradictions, and your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. 
Help us to see that you love us this much and teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be changed, transformed, made more and more into your image and likeness, that we would be sent out to be agents of your renewal wherever we go in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I've got to tell you, as I was studying this passage this week, as many of you know, I don't choose the readings per Sunday. We get these from the lectionary, which is the global church's book of readings for a particular day. So around the world, in every language, this passage has been read and heard. And it has a lot of twists and turns and interesting, you know, Paul's repeating himself in some places. We'll get into all of that in a moment. But this scripture was written to an urban church in Rome, to a young church in a cosmopolitan international city, a city that had its own political and economic troubles, a city that was no stranger to plagues and pandemics. So though these words were written to a church in the middle of a city 2,000 years ago, there are so many resonances and things we have in common with the very first recipients of this letter. It strikes me as a pastor in this particular season, there are some of you right now who are a part of this church, who are a part of this service, who are, you know, this is actually, you're you're making lemonade out of the lemons that we have in the pandemic. One person, uh, one family in this church is flying to go and pick up an RV today so that you can go on a trip around the country. If you have to shelter in place and stay home, you might as well bring your home with you. So there's joy there. I know that there are, there's another family who is a part of this church who right now you're in quarantine because some of you have been uh, uh, around somebody at work who came out COVID positive and now you can't even leave the house for two weeks. We have people in this church who have health concerns, either personal health concerns or those of your family. We have people in this church who are in the tech industry and your job is going great right now because the world is hungering for more and more technology and getting online at an ever frantic pace. The point is, we approach this very moment from all different perspectives. And the question is, what does God say to us when it feels like life is a snow globe that has been shaken up and everything seems to be going in every direction? How do we move through a pandemic without minimizing suffering or hiding our fear but to actually face fear and suffering and come out with more hope and more patience than we even had before? This is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this first letter, is getting at in this passage. And so let's look at this today as we consider freedom from fear, meaning in our suffering and patience in our hope. Okay, first, let's look at freedom from fear. Now, this passage, and this is one of the things I love about Scripture, is when you, read, when you get into it, it gives an honest accounting and description of what it's like to be a human being. It's an honest, unfiltered description of our human condition. In verse 12 and 13, he talks about we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, he, when, he, when, he, when he talks about the flesh, he's not saying the human body is a bad thing or that the physical world is a bad thing. Because later in verse 23, he will say that our very bodies will be glorified. So to be human is beautiful and dignified. And and to be 
physical is actually a good thing. The problem is not that you are human. The problem is that you're a fallen human being. This is a way of describing the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Some commentators say when he talks about life in the flesh, he's talking about your fallen, false self. Then he goes on to say in verse 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery. Okay? In the Roman Empire, they were well acquainted with slavery, to be in bondage, to be in chains, to not be the very version of yourself that you were created to be. And he would say, this is to live in fear and anxiety, to face sickness and death. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Creation is both beautiful and in bondage. Earlier, he describes what it's like to live in this experience as a human being. And he says, the very things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, those are the things I cannot stop doing. And then he rhetorically asks, who can rescue me? Wretched man that I am, I'm broken, I'm fallen, I'm living in the flesh. Who's going to rescue me? And then chapter 8, which is where our letter comes from, begins with, but thanks be to God in whom there is no condemnation. Do you hear that? It's such an honest accounting. He says, look, on one hand, left to my own devices, I'm hopeless. I try to present a good, a good face to the world. I try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. But the reality is that strategy is exhausting me and alienating me. But God has come in and rescued me and done for me what I could never do for myself. And so, even as I hold... The sorrow, the sadness, the frustration, I can do it with hope because God is at work. He says, all creation, not just you are in bondage, so your own anxiety and fear and sickness and death, the entire creation is in bondage. All of society does not operate the way it's supposed to operate. We operate according to principles of racism and judging each other by the color of our skin rather than the content of our character. Though we are all created in the image and likeness of God, we like to create a ranking order. These people are better than these people. These are like us. These are like them. We tribalize everything. He says this is all part of the slavery that all of our creation is in right now. Instead of using our skills and our talents to build something beautiful in this world, we set up corporations that will, in the name of economic gain, actually destroy the planet, the very planet that we are called to care for. And so he lays all that out and says, that's what it's like to live according to the flesh. But you did not receive that spirit of slavery. That is not your core DNA. That is not your operating system. So though this is our current condition, this is not what you were created for. What were you created for? You received a spirit of adoption. You received a spirit of adoption, verse 15. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children with God. And if children, then heirs, with, and, if, and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You have been adopted into the royal family, the ultimate royal family. The creator of the universe not only knows your name and knows your story, not only moves toward you in sacrificial, self-giving love, he calls you his own and says, no longer be a stranger and don't only be a friend, I want to call you my child. 
Let me adopt you into my family. And as we're adopted into this new family of faith, notice we get new brothers and sisters. Verse 12, our passage starts, so then, brothers and sisters, these were not biologically brothers and sisters, but these were closer than that. So I always say, when you're adopted into the family of God, you get a new father and a new big brother, Jesus Christ. And you also get brothers and sisters you would never choose if it was all up to you. And that's actually the most difficult part and for your own good. So we learn to love one another, to care for one another, to share one another's burdens. One of the things I love about our church, I shared with you the other week about our friend Lori. Lori, if you're watching, hello. Lori has joined Renew Church. She is a vibrant part of the community. I have never met Lori face to face. Our friend sent the, address, the web address to Lori, said, you might get something out of this church. Lori joined in. She loved being a part of it, joined our community group on Zoom on Wednesday, and now Lori is connected not only with God and with the church, with me, she's connected with many of you, even this week, as you are all sending text messages back and forth to each other to encourage one another. New brothers and sisters. Who can you be a brother or a sister to today? When you're adopted into the family of God, you get a new inheritance altogether. I have a friend who now is a, a very uh, educated and smart and thoughtful attorney. And part of his story is he was adopted as a child. And as soon as he was adopted, he went from having not a family to having a family. He also went from having not food to having plenty of food. He went from not having a college fund to having a college fund because his new family set up love, care, and funding, and inheritance. And Paul is saying, don't you know the great wealth that's available to you? You are co-heirs with Christ. That's a fancy way of saying everything that's true of him is true of you. So when he says, I have all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of the nations and baptize them and teach them all that I've taught you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. When Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water and the spirit descends like a dove and the voice of the Father comes and says, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. That is your inheritance and your identity as well. Because you do get a new identity when you're adopted into this family. No longer strangers, no longer subject to slavery, you are called children of God. And it's kind of easy to miss what Paul's doing here. It would not have been easy to miss for the original audience. He says, you are children of God when you receive a spirit of adoption, when we cry, Abba, Father. It's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba, was Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke, for daddy. Okay? It's not father, um, it's, although you can call him that. It's daddy. It's intimate. It's close. My mom was sharing a story yesterday about uh, one of my uncles, my stepdad's brother, who he's a high-powered executive at a big, big bank, and they just had a grandchild, and he elected to have his grandfather name be Pop-Pop. And my mom was smiling and laughing, you know, this high-powered executive, when he goes back home and sits with this child, is no longer, you know, in the C-suite of the business in the corner office at the top floor of the building. He's just pop-pop. And in many ways, how much more is God in all his power and glory coming to you and saying, call me daddy. 
How I long to be with you. You have a new access altogether. A closeness. You know, I'm relatively easy to get a hold of as a pastor. People say to me, Matt, you're probably too busy to meet with me. You know, thank you for getting me on your schedule. The reality is I am busy, but I'm busy meeting with people like you. But it takes a couple days to get on my schedule, maybe a week at, at the most. But if one of my children needs something, they can come to me at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water, and I'll give it to them. Because I'm their daddy. I care for them. God says, you don't need to schedule an appointment. You don't need to wait to get closer to me. Come to me anytime, all the time. Come to me as a child comes to their father, as a child comes to their daddy. This is the spirit that you have received. Now, here's the thing. Even now, there's part of many of us saying, you know what, that sounds too good to be true. Or I remember a time when God seemed close and now he seems so far away. And I think this is why Romans 8 says, the spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We need to be reminded. We develop spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are and whose we are. And so we go around asking anybody and anything we can to please tell me that I have an identity and an inheritance and a place where I belong and a people that I belong to. And we pour ourselves out in all sorts of different ways toward our career, toward our bank account, toward the image that we present to this world. We take even good things like relationships and we make them ultimate things and we put too much stress and pressure on them and become codependent because they were never meant to hold the weight of our existence. So we need to be reminded. You are a child of God. You come to God not as one who's far off, but as one coming to their daddy. Now here's the intriguing thing. Paul uh, would probably get a D minus in in language and grammar here uh, because he doesn't keep his subject and his verb in the same tense throughout the whole letter. I'll give you an example. There's two tenses of salvation that are taking place here. In verse 15, he says... You have received a spirit of adoption. So everything I just said is already true of you if you are united with Christ in faith. But in verse 23, he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption in the future. Paul, which one is it? Do we have the spirit of adoption or are we waiting for adoption in the future? And Paul would say, yes, both. It's a both and. This is what some theologians mean when they say that it's the the essence of the already and not yet of the coming kingdom of God. That Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection has done something in human history to inaugurate the new creation, to begin it. And yet, it is not fully played out and laid out in its glorious final form. And so we live in the overlap of two ages. The old age that is marked by slavery to sin and death and the new age to come that is marked by your identity as an adopted child of God. And so we need to remember again and again. Which brings us meaning in the midst of our suffering. 
In verse 18 he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to say, you know, because we are groaning as though we are in labor. And not only us, creation is groaning as though it is in labor. You see, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody having a child. And some of you have had children yourselves. I've been around three labors myself. Actually, many more, but three in our own particular family. The first one, I nailed. I, I went to all the childbirth classes with Florence, and they told me about the 5-1-1 rule. If you don't know what that is, it means you wait for the contractions to come every five minutes, and they last for a minute, and that's been taking place for one hour. And I'm writing everything down and tracking with a stopwatch. And we get to the hospital, and the doctor said, who decided to come to the hospital right now? And I said, I did. And he said, right on. You, just, you totally nailed it. So many people either come too early or too late. So, you know, I'm high-fiving. Florence was not high-fiving at that point. So the second child comes, and I, I've got this. I mean, I've already aced the first test, 5-1-1. I know how to do it. No one told me the second child can come much faster, and 5-1-1 only counts for the first child. And so it was when I heard a particular groan at our home when I realized I have not heard that sound since right before our first child came out into this world. It is time to go to the hospital. And Paul says, to be living in this world, with all of its already and not yet, with all of its frustration and difficulty, it, it is like groaning something into existence, and, which means, on one hand, there's suffering, and there's pain. And we can be honest about it. But it's not suffering and pain that is meaningless. It's suffering and pain that is actually going somewhere. Whenever I have a, a friend, if they ask me for any advice about, you know, they, they just got pregnant and they're going to have a child, I, I usually say one of the things that has helped me is the saying, this will not last forever. And so if the woman's in the first trimester and she's feeling morning sickness and all that, we remember this is not going to last forever. And then in the third trimester when the woman is, you know, she's getting bigger, she's carrying this child, she's not comfortable, she's not sleeping well, she just wants this baby out. Remember, this is not going to last forever. And then you go into labor and it's extremely painful and just remember, this is not going to last forever. And then you're in the first year and you're not sleeping, just remember, this is not going to last forever. This is all going somewhere. And Paul says, I consider... The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Remember, this is not going to last forever. This is actually going somewhere. And then he says, in verse 20, For creation was subjected to futility. This is Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have a picture of a good God who creates a beautiful world and blesses it and says it's good. And he takes the man and the woman and he puts them in the garden and he says, you can do anything you want. You can eat anything you want. Just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And in Genesis 3, the evil one comes and says, did he really say you can't eat any of the trees? Which is not what he said. He tricked him. The oldest trick in the book, to doubt that God actually cares about you and loves you and will provide for you. And they fell for it, just like you and I do. And because of that, creation was subjected to futility. You see the unraveling of humanity and creation in four major dimensions. 
You see spiritual alienation where the man and the woman used to walk with God face to face. I wonder what that would have looked like. And now they're hiding. Spiritual alienation. No longer close to the one that created them. Both a longing to be close, but also a fear of God that is unwarranted. They're psychologically alienated, where they used to be naked and not ashamed, which was both literal and it's a picture of what it looks like to be comfortable in your own skin, unafraid to be fully known and to know others fully, but now they're hiding, they're covering up. Social alienation, where they used to be flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone and one one body and one mind in relationship, and now they're blame shifting. She did it, he did it, it's her fault, it's his fault. Not too far into the story, we're going to see the first murder when Cain kills Abel. And then we're going to see entire societies at war in social alienation. We see ecological and environmental alienation as well, where the humans in the garden used to till the land with great joy and it would produce much fruit. And now they're going to work hard and they're barely going to get anything for it. They're going to be frustrated. It's going to be futile. And that's what Paul is hearkening back to when he says creation is subject to futility. It's unraveling. Now, that's my quick two-minute overview of the unraveling of creation, but you know it's much more complex than that. The relationships that you want to be closest to in life are the hardest ones to actually cultivate with care and closeness. Your own self as you continue to think about your goals and your hopes and what you want to do. And yet it's those very things that you would think that we're focusing on and putting the most of our energy toward. They seem the most elusive. It's frustrating. It's subject to futility. Because life is complex. And the more complex and intricate, the more beautiful it is when it goes right. And the more disastrous it is when it goes wrong. The more intricate, the more easily it gets out of tune as well. I experienced this in a funny way. I've had a Toyota Camry. I've had two different Toyota Camrys in my life. And one of the things I love about that car is all you need to do is take care of the brakes and the oil and put gas in it and rotate the tires. And it runs for hundreds of thousands of miles. So I was both overjoyed and surprised when my friend took me for a ride in a Ferrari 458 Italia one day. And as we were going just a wee bit over the speed limit, I remember hearing a different sort of a rattle or a vibration. And I said, what is that? And he said, you know, this machine is so finely tuned. You know, I I made this one error with it earlier. And because of that, it's now out of tune. And I have to take it in. And that's hundreds and hundreds of dollars. My Camry would have weathered whatever he did like nothing but it's a Toyota Camry. When you get into the Ferrari, it's both more beautiful, more powerful, more completely inspiring, and it gets out of tune even easier. How much more for your life and for mine, for your relationships and for mine, for this world with all of its beauty and complexity? And Paul says, it is both beautiful and subject to futility. The community is groaning. Now, Paul is writing to a particular community with specific concerns. He's saying this community under the Roman Empire, with their, you know, with their boot on our backs, we're feeling, we're groaning and feeling what it looks like to need to be liberated. 
a community that is trying to live together with racial reconciliation. For them, it was the Greeks and the Hebrews coming together as brothers and sisters. For us, it's so many more ethnicities and cultures coming together. But it's hard work. He says it feels like groaning. But not only that, all creation is groaning. Right now, our whole society is groaning with the COVID-19 pandemic. As I cited earlier in the week, the New York Times article that says, Americans are the most sad we've been in the last 50 years. I was walking around a park yesterday seeing all the San Diegans out there, picnic blankets and throwing the Frisbee. And I realized they're all part of that steady as well. We hide it well. We go outside, it's beautiful, we enjoy the sunshine, but underneath all that, there's a groaning that's going on. Right now, with our call as a nation and as a world for racial equality, for racial justice, this is a groaning that is going on in our society. Many of you have experienced this groaning your entire life. Friends, where do you experience this frustration right now? Where are you groaning? He says, this is what it's like to experience the futility of this creation, the already and the not yet. And yet, this pain and this suffering is infused with deep meaning because it will not have the final word. All creation is actually going somewhere. As he talks about waiting for the redemption of our bodies, that word redemption is the counterpart to the, to the term of being in slavery. You did not receive a spirit of slavery. You are being redeemed. And that word means to be purchased out of slavery, to be freed, to be bought out of bondage so that you are free to experience and live and be the person God created you to be. He says that is what we long for this side of the new creation. But ultimately, we long for a final redemption, a new heavens and a new earth. This whole creation is not something you just merely need to endure for your short time on this planet, and then God is going to get you out of here into heaven, but rather we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God's kingdom and new creation are actually breaking forth right here and right now. And this is what can enable us to become patient with hope. In verse 24, he says, For in hope we were saved. That is past tense. That has already happened. Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has rescued you and called you his own, and nobody can take that away from you. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He takes the suffering. He takes the groaning, he takes the futility, and he's honest about all of it. And then he sees it in a much bigger context. The context of God's new creation. Psychologists and therapists will tell us that part of the human need for buoyancy, for resiliency, is to be able to trust that there is the potential that tomorrow can be better than today. Hope is removed when you give in to the thought that, there, that tomorrow cannot be better than today. Paul says our present sufferings are incomparable to the glory that is coming in that tomorrow. 
and so we can be patient with our hope now. I heard an illustration as I was studying for this sermon, and the illustration goes like this. Imagine there are two women, each who have a purse that contains all their earthly belongings, and each purse has in it $1,000, which is all the money that each woman has. And they're walking down the street, and each one has their purse snatched from them and is taken. But one of them knows that for some reason she's going to be wired $10 million into her bank account tomorrow. The first woman, who has nothing coming, is devastated. The second woman knows that tomorrow can be better than today, and she has buoyancy and resiliency. And Paul says, how much more? You have been adopted You've been called God's own. You've been rescued. As we said at the beginning of the service, you remember the ways that God has cared for you in the past and you begin to reason with yourself, the same God who has loved me and cared for me will provide for me now and in the future. So Christians have a hope, not by forgetting or by minimizing. We have a hope by remembering and anticipating. I want to leave you with this thought. In verse 22, it says that creation is groaning under the strain of the suffering. In verse 23, it says that we are groaning under the fear and the strain of our situation. And if you read on one verse after what we read today, verse 26, it says, the Holy Spirit of God groans on our behalf. God knows what it's like to feel the futility of your life, the fear of this current condition. And he doesn't merely stand and watch from far off. He actually experiences it and takes it upon himself. And so now, whatever you are going through or your loved ones are going through, you can say God sees it and he knows it. In fact, he knows it even better than you do, what it's like to be you. And he's doing something about it. That God not only promises new creation, but then he shows us what it's going to look like. That's what Paul means when he talks about the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23. That when you see Jesus' resurrected body, that death itself could not contain him. That injustice in an unjust murder by the state as he was crucified on a cross, would not be the final chapter of his life. Because in his resurrection, he broke through sin and suffering and injustice and death. And Paul says, that's the first fruits. That's the sneak preview. That is one bit of what it's going to be like to be adopted into his family and be with him in glory. And so, friends, maybe the invitation now is the hardest thing of all, which is to actually trust that that's the truest indicator of who you are and of your current condition. I invite you to be free from fear as you consider that you are adopted into God's family. I invite you to find meaning in your suffering as you are able to own the fact that this is suffering. It feels like the groaning of labor pains and yet it is going somewhere because the new creation is being birthed in the midst of the old, which enables you and me to be patient in our suffering as we see that God not only suffers with us, but also is redeeming and renewing even that. And as we receive that, don't you see, 
you get a whole new reservoir of resources to go out into this world more resilient, more buoyant, more honest, not only for yourself, but you get a whole new fuel tank to go and to be that for others, to walk towards others' pain, to be patient with them in their suffering. And as we do, we're transformed. The world is transformed. And you'll never be the same. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we read this scripture, help us now to receive what you would have to say to us. Help us to believe that we are adopted into your family. And so the truest indicator of our identity is beloved child. Help us to own the difficulties of our own lives, the futility and the frailty, the frustrations. And remember that that is not the final word on our lives or on this world. Help us to see that you not only groan with us, but you are actually birthing a new creation in the midst of the old. Help us to trust that and be agents of your new creation, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.